This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Let's Get Physiological. In this episode, we'll be talking about the novel coronavirus and some of the amazing research that physiologists are doing to try and help combat this disease. Now, this episode's slightly different to usual. Obviously, for starters, we're working from home, so I'm currently standing in an airing cupboard. And I'm kind of at a desk, but trying to get my microphone propped up by, like, chopping boards and boxes. It, it's not the prettiest of sights. But we don't feel too far from home because we usually record in the basement of the Physiological Society. So we're making do, we're making do. And we've got some really amazing guests today. We've got Dean Willis, who's a lecturer in neuroscience, physiology and pharmacology at University College London. We've got Georgina Ellison-Hughes, who's a professor of regenerative muscle physiology at King's College London. But first up, we spoke to Caroline Jolly, who's a senior lecturer in human physiology at King's College London and also an honorary consultant in respiratory medicine at King's College Hospital. And we asked her to talk about and explain what a coronavirus actually is. Coronaviruses are a family of viruses that infect a wide range of different species, including humans, cattle, pigs, chickens, dogs, cats and wild animals. Coronaviruses are zoonotic pathogens, which means that they spread between animals and humans. Until this new coronavirus was identified, there are only six different coronaviruses known to infect humans. Four of these cause a mild common cold type illness. But since 2002, there's been the emergence of two new coronaviruses that can infect humans and result in more severe disease. These were SARS, which stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS coronavirus, which was identified in 2012. Coronaviruses are known to be able to occasionally jump from one species to another. And this is what happened in the case of SARS, MERS and the new coronavirus. So the term coronavirus actually refers to the family of diseases, not this specific disease. You may have heard it referred to as two different names, COVID-19 and also SARS-CoV-2. So what's the difference? The clinical disease termed COVID-19 is caused by a novel beta coronavirus, one which has never been seen before in humans, which has now been named SARS-CoV-2. COVID-19 refers to the disease that the SARS-CoV-2 virus causes. So one tests positive for SARS-CoV-2 virus infection, not COVID-19, because it's the virus and not the disease that does the infecting. So COVID-19 refers to the disease, while SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus that causes the disease. So what are the main symptoms of COVID-19? The primary pathology of COVID-19 disease is acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. Acute respiratory distress syndrome is a type of respiratory failure characterised by rapid onset of widespread inflammation in the lungs. Emerging evidence suggests that some patients may respond to viral infection in COVID-19 with an exuberant cytokine storm reaction, which is associated with a very poor prognosis. Most patients with COVID-19 present with constitutional symptoms, commonly fever, but also headache, muscle aches and pains, and lower respiratory tract symptoms such as cough and breathlessness. In fact, the majority of patients will present with constitutional symptoms and lower respiratory symptoms in combination, for example, fever and cough. 
Although it's widely stated that COVID-19 presents with a dry rather than a productive cough, a recent large cohort study reported that cough with sputum was a presenting feature in around one third of cases. So the presence of a productive cough doesn't exclude COVID-19 disease. Up to 10% of patients can present initially with gastrointestinal symptoms, such as diarrhoea and nausea, which precede the development of fever and breathlessness. It's important to recognise that the absence of a fever does not exclude COVID-19. Some patients may develop hypoxemia, so low blood oxygen tensions, and respiratory failure without breathlessness. Um, this um, is so-called silent hypoxemia. And this presents problems because patients may not realise that they are ill or indeed infectious until a relatively late stage. And the elderly are at particular risk of this silent hypoxemia. So there was a lot of information there. COVID-19 is a respiratory disease, which means that it can affect your lungs, which is why one of the symptoms is breathlessness. But there is also other symptoms such as fever, um, you can get a cough and even vomiting. But importantly, these symptoms don't occur in all cases, which is why many countries are enforcing strict social distancing and social isolation measures, because people could be carrying the disease without having any symptoms and therefore spread it unknowingly. You may have also heard Caroline mention something called a cytokine storm, and we'll actually be coming back to that later. Now, of course, the fantastic doctors and nurses all around the world are working extremely hard to help treat those with severe cases of the disease. But what's the role of physiologists in all this? Clinical physiologists play an essential role in the care of critically ill patients from performing the test used to detect and monitor the effects of the disease on cardiorespiratory function to assisting clinicians with the delivery of respiratory support. These needs are predicted to become increasingly evident over coming weeks to months with the unprecedented threat of an exponentially increasing number of patients succumbing to ARDS and respiratory failure who will require ventilatory support. Those patients who recover are likely to be left with impaired lung and heart function and the impact of critical illness on muscle deconditioning, functional impairment and the implications for provision of long-term ventilatory support has yet to be imagined. Physiologists are essential to us meeting these challenges, from the immediate need for expansion of delivery of ventilatory support to the longer-term challenges of monitoring and supporting recovery through tests of cardiorespiratory function and the design and delivery of rehabilitation programmes for the recovery of the survivors of COVID-19. So physiologists are extremely important in helping healthcare workers deal with the COVID-19 pandemic, from helping analyse the tests which determine whether patients test positive for the virus, to the development of rehabilitation programmes in the long term to help patient recovery. Another area in which physiologists play a key role is in the development of new treatments, which is what we're going to focus on today. Ever since the emergence of COVID-19, scientists and doctors around the world have been desperately searching for treatments that can help those with severe cases of the disease. Currently, most patients who are hospitalised with the disease receive medicines to bring down their fever, fluids to keep them hydrated, and in severe cases, patients are connected to a ventilator, a piece of medical equipment which helps them to breathe. Whilst these measures have been effective in some cases, they are simply treating the symptoms of the disease and are still relying on the patient's immune system to fight off the virus. If we could develop a treatment to help our bodies fight off the virus, this could end up saving thousands of lives. 
Now that the disease has officially been classed as a pandemic, the hunt for a cure has become more important than ever. And as this is a completely new virus, the problem is even greater, as no one has any immunity and unlike flu, we have no vaccine. We spoke to Dean Willis, lecturer in neuroscience, physiology and pharmacology at University College London, to find out more about the possible treatment options for COVID-19. At the time being, we're in, a, I think, in a situation where there is no, obviously, definitive therapies which have gone through full, full clinical trials. And therefore, my clinical colleagues are scrambling to try and find uh, therapies that could be of any use, to be honest. Uh, but this research is being rapidly conducted and hopefully we'll have some recommendations in the future. I should say that it's actually, again, uh, relatively difficult during this pandemic, which is what it now is, to try and conduct uh, proper rigorous clinical trials. And perhaps it's only going to be after this infectious episode that we can look back and see what the best treatment options are going to be. Developing a treatment for a new virus can take many years, and that's why some scientists have been looking at repurposing drugs that are currently used for different conditions. So what do we know about how the disease affects the body that might help us look for a treatment? At the present time, we're learning all the time about how uh, COVID-19 is actually working, and there's only evidence beginning to accumulate on what happens, particularly in the more severe cases. And it looks like in the more severe cases, there may be a phenomenon which is close to things like acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is a inflammatory pathology in which there's a high production of the inflammatory response uh, associated with high production of cytokines. So it seems that the symptoms of COVID-19 are associated with inflammation. This is the body's response to injury. Many human diseases are related to inflammation, so it might be that we can repurpose these drugs to help treat COVID-19. For example, tocilizumab. Tocilizumab is an anti-IL-6 receptor antibody. And this has been suggested may be a treatment for individuals who have this more severe form of the infection. Now, this is interesting because these drugs are presently licensed for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. And some of the side effects that you do see with individuals taking this drug in rheumatoid arthritis is sometimes an increased ability to infections. So again, we need to find out more what's happening here in this situation. Tazilzumab is an immunosuppressive drug which works by inhibiting interleukin-6, or IL-6, a molecule which is involved in the development of immunological and inflammatory reactions. Clinical trials are set to begin in early April, so are there any other drugs that could be repurposed? Uh, so, of course, now there's been a number of suggestions and a number of drugs which look like they're interesting. First one I'm going to talk about is one that's been suggested, I believe, coming out of France, which is actually an old malarial drug, uh, chloroquinine, or hydroxychloroquinine. Now, this drug has been around for many years and it's used for treatment of malaria. Its exact mechanism of action in malaria is not 100% known, but it's believed to inhibit an enzyme called heme polymerase. Heme is an important molecule in many proteins which contributes to catalytic activity, for instance, you find it in hemoglobin. But heme itself, when it's released, and it's released in the reefocytes during malarial infection, is actually quite a dangerous molecule, and the parasite needs to basically evolve a way in which heme uh, doesn't interfere with its natural life cycle. And it does this by basically polymerizing it. 
bind enzyme called heme polymerase. We don't have this enzyme. We don't polymerase heme. What we do is break it down by an enzyme called heme oxygenase. And so it's been thought that chloroquinoline inhibits this polymerase enzyme. But I should, say, I should point out there's been possibly other mechanisms suggested for this molecule. Now, interestingly, well, at least at me, from a rheumatoid arthritis point of view, this drug has also been used for rheumatoid arthritis. It's an old drug, but it has been used for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, and in fact, still is in some of the settings. Now, how it works in COVID-19 is not known. It seems to be somehow decreases the severity of the infection that make individuals recover quicker. Uh, again, probably in mild to moderate cases. So again, we're not 100% sure how it works, but there's some evidence coming out that it could be of interest. How it works in this setting is not known. So chloroquine is cheap and widely available and is routinely used to treat malaria and has been shown to be effective against the novel coronavirus in vitro. That's in a test tube, although a lot more studies are still needed. So perhaps there is hope for the repurposing of drugs to treat COVID-19. But what about developing a treatment specific to COVID-19? The other main thrust of drugs would be antivirals. Now, antivirals are essentially, from a drug discovery point of view, there's one major paradigm that's, that's used, and that was set up by Paul Heilicht over 100 years ago now. And essentially, the theory of most antivirals, particularly things like anti-HIV drugs, is to look at the biochemistry of the host cell and the pathogen. Now, the virus itself hijacks some of the biochemical machinery of its host so it can hijack it uh, and allow it to uh, replicate both its genome and the building blocks of the virus particle itself. The idea for antivirals, and what Paul Heinrich said, actually, his idea on the magic bullet chemotherapy, is to identify those biochemical pathways which are unique to the pathogen and which hopefully are not hijacked by the viral pathogen. Now, it's, well, it's known that there will be differences in biochemistry between the virus, the way that it replicates, and the way in which the general biochemical machinery of the host cell. So if we can identify those pathways which are specific to the viral particle of COVID-19, we may be able to produce very selective antiviral drugs. Viruses are unable to reproduce alone and need to hijack a host cell in order to be able to replicate. So the theory behind antiviral drugs is to try and target proteins or parts of proteins in the virus that can be disabled. Ideally, these proteins should be different from any proteins in our cells to reduce the likelihood of side effects. We were interested in finding out more about antiviral drugs. So we have two possible ways, uh, two possible mechanisms. We can prevent the COVID-19 entering the cell, and that's a, a viable option for, say, something like HIV infection. The other thing is that once it's in the cell, it will hijack some of the biochemical machinery of the cell, but it will also synthesise some enzymes proteins that it also requires from its own genome. So I believe for COVID-19, it's an RNA virus and it needs to replicate its own RNA. We don't tend to copy our RNA, so that might be a, an interesting point of therapeutic opportunity. The other aspect of COVID-19 is that it produces, when it synthesizes its protein from its RNA, it produces a polyprotein. This needs to be cleaved by protease. And this is uh, similar to what happens in HIV. 
And it's believed that some of the HIV protease inhibitors could be repurposed for the treatment of COVID-19. So it might be that antiviral HIV drugs could also help to fight against COVID-19. But what about the other option, preventing the virus getting into the cells? The other interesting information that's come around is how the virus COVID-19 actually gets into cells. Now, it looks like some of the information coming out appears that it uses something called ACE2, angiotensin converting enzyme 2, which is an enzyme found on the cell. Now, it would be possible that if this was confirmed that you could target this molecule to prevent entry of COVID-19 into the cell. However, ACE2 is also uh, maybe involved in possibly protecting against certain cardiovascular conditions and therefore inhibiting this molecule or blocking it may have other consequences. So again, for the work, uh, it's required to look at this. So preventing the virus getting into cells is another option for antiviral drug development, but this could also cause other side effects, so much more research is required. But it's not just drug treatments that are showing promise for COVID-19. Georgina Ellison-Hughes from King's College London has been working on a treatment to improve the outcome of patients with COVID-19 through mesenchymal stem cell transplants. So first things first, what are mesenchymal stem cells? Mesenchymal stem cells are a type of stromal cell or multipotent stromal cell that are found in the bone marrow. And they can differentiate into a variety of cell types, such as your bone cells, or these are called your osteoblasts, or your chondrocytes, which are your cartilage cells. But one important function of mesenchymal stem cells is not so much their ability to differentiate into different cell types, but it's actually their immunomodulatory properties. And this means that they secrete bioactive agents, such as cytokines, and this then leads to them being able to modify the immune response. So they're able to detect changes in their environment. So they can detect changes that happen as a result of inflammation. And then they react according to to that by releasing these cytokines. So it's these immunomodulatory properties of mesenchymal stem cells that might make them a useful tool in the treatment of COVID-19. They secrete cytokines, which is a broad category of small proteins, such as the interleukin mentioned by Dean, that are important in cell signalling in the immune system. So how could this help patients with severe symptoms from COVID-19? The COVID-19 disease that you get that causes problems to the lungs and the airways, which then can lead to like edema and then dysfunction of your air exchange. And then it can lead to this thing called acute respiratory distress syndrome. What happens is that this can then stimulate a thing called an inflammation cytokine storm, where basically your immune response becomes over kind of activated. And so you get this this cytokine storm that happens in your lungs. And what the MSCs do is that because of their powerful immunomodulatory ability, they could then attenuate or prevent that cytokine storm from becoming a problem. So that's why they could aid in the in the recovery of patients with uh, COVID-19 pneumonia or the acute respiratory distress syndrome. So this all sounds very promising, but how easy is it for us to get these mesenchymal stem cells? You can get them from anybody and you can propagate them in vitro. So you can grow them up so that you have enough of them. 
and that they're, they're also allergenaic. So you don't have to take them from yourself. You can take them from another person and transplant them. So their immunomodulatory properties are still there, even though they don't come from you. So another great thing about mesenchymal stem cells is that they're allergenaic. This means that their important immunomodulatory responses are still effective, even if the mesenchymal stem cells that are transplanted are from someone else. So what have we learnt so far about using mesenchymal stem cells to treat patients with COVID-19? We have actually undertaken a clinical trial in China, in Beijing, whereby we had seven patients who had COVID-19 pneumonia and we injected mesenchymal stem cells intravenously because if you inject them intravenously, they go to the lungs because um, that's the first place they'll go to, which is where we need them to be because that's where the cytokine storm is. We injected them and then we did a follow-up of 14 days to see uh, what happened. So all the patients before we transplanted the MSCs, they had COVID-19 pneumonia with all the symptoms, the high fever, the shortness of breath, the weakness, they had low oxygen saturation. And what we found was that about two to four days after the transplantation, uh, the symptoms had disappeared in all of the patients. We didn't find this was the case when we did inject placebo into just control patients. So we had three control patients who didn't receive the cells. Um, this wasn't the case with them. But one thing that was the most interesting was among those seven MSE treated patients, one was severe and he was critically ill and he was also elderly, but he actually made a full recovery and was able to be discharged 10 days after treatment. So we postulated in this trial that it was because, you know, the mesenchymal stem cells were able to restore the balance of the immune system to fight that severe cytokine storm and modulate it so that the, the, the immune function of these patients was able to be restored and then the patients were able to fight the infection and they were then able to make a recovery. So now we are hoping to start a clinical trial here at King's, which we're going to do with our affiliated hospitals, whereby we are going to inject intravenously mesenchymal stem cells that we have acquired through an agreement with Mesioblast, which is a company that supplies MSCs. And we're going to do this in patients that have acute respiratory distress syndrome caused by COVID-19. And that's, you know, that's, that's how we think we can use the MSCs to treat these COVID-19 patients. So it seems that intravenous injection of mesenchymal stem cells could be an effective way to help treat COVID-19 patients with pneumonia by helping to restore their immune function and therefore fight off the infection. So what are the next steps? So at the moment, we have the cells, the cells are there, they, they, you know, they're, they're ready to be used. We have enough of them at the moment. Not sure we'd have enough of them if we had to treat an awful lot of people, but we definitely have enough to run a clinical trial and we could do enough for about 50 patients in the first clinical trial. This clinical trial is actually happening and starting in Australia. I think it's going to start this week. So there's definitely enough cells for that. In terms of whether they could become, you know, a treatment, we obviously have to go through the same process that we go through with any kind of therapy, which is we have to perform the phase one, the phase two and the phase three clinical trials to make sure that they're safe, uh, make sure that they're efficacious, 
so I would say before it became something that, you know, was a clinically approved treatment, you could be looking at maybe, you know, a year or so, if not more. But that doesn't mean that you can't have many centres sign up to perform a clinical trial using these cells. And there's different companies around that have cells. So, you know, you might find that one cell type from one company is is more efficacious than another. But definitely, you know, it's something that lots of clinical centres could become involved in the clinical trial. And it's probably something that could be a good idea to do, considering there is no treatment for COVID-19. So, you know, we're experimenting with different drugs and different therapy options to try to, well, stop people from dying, basically. So while it's unlikely we're going to develop a treatment for COVID-19 anytime soon, there are scientists hard at work investigating every possible avenue for a way that we can fight this disease. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode of Let's Get Physiological. If you want to find out more about physiological research in coronavirus, make sure to visit our website www.physsoc.org forward slash coronavirus. I've been Emily Wilde. And I've been Amy Warnock. And we've been Getting Physiological. This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society.